you'll join me now in taking your copy of God's Word. We've been saying the past few weeks to remind us as we turn in our passage in God's Word, we believe that Scripture is without any error. There's no mistake in it. It is truthful in all that it teaches. Let's we'll keep this in mind as we turn together to our passage for this morning and part of our spiritual diet for this week, and as Acts 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. You may recognize this passage. It's talking about the formation of the diaconate in the church. And it's easy to maybe just think of this in terms of of government in the church. But I want you to think through these questions I'm getting ready to ask. I want you to answer them for yourself, but also to see how they're answered in our passage as we prepare to read it. And the overarching question is this. Do you find joy in Christ? Do you find the utmost joy in being His? Do you find joy in serving Him? Do you find your joy in walking according to His revealed will and the way He is modeled? Do you have joy in having your identity in Him? And how we answer that question will then determine our life and circumstances. Do our, does our life, do our circumstances look different because of the joy of Christ? The joy of knowing that He first loved you, that He chose you, He called you, He saved you, He redeemed you. Do you find joy in Christ? Do you find joy in being His? And of course, the answer to that question will determine everything about you, your life, and your faith. It will determine how you think about how you live your life. If our joy is in Christ, then who will our life be for? It will be for Christ. But if our joy is in ourselves, if our joy is in the pursuit of this world, if our joy is in sin and sinfulness, then we have a life that rebels against his love and grace. How would you answer that? And in your answer, I want you to see how the early church answered this question. When a problem arose in the church, a rather significant problem, how did they respond? And how do we see the joy of Christ in their response? We will read about that in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Lord, our prayer is very simple this morning. May our joy be in you. May our joy be in the triumph God, who is our Father, who is our Lord and Savior, who is our teacher, comforter, and guide. And in that joy... May we find joy in your word. May our joy be reverence. May it be humble. May it be thorough. And may it be evident in how we now come before your word. We praise now in Jesus' name, one who is the author and perfecter of our joy. Amen. The Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. 
Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to go and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, those who are full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite childhood memories was going in the evenings to Riley Park in Sumter to go and watch the Sumter Braves who were a single-A minor league team of the Atlanta Braves. We would go and get a brown bag of bowl peanuts, Valencia, the red kind, the best kind, a bag of bowl peanuts, a bottle of Coke. We would find some seats just a few rows behind home plate and sit and enjoy an evening of good baseball. And during this time, there were future Braves who were up and coming through, their, through the farm system. I got to see Tom Glavin pitch, Jeff Blauser, Ron Gant, Ryan Klesko, Mark Lemke, all these wonderful Braves I got to see because the minor league system of the Sumter Braves there in Sumter. Now, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with, with Major League Baseball and how teams are set up, let me try to explain it to you quickly and concisely as I can, you have the major league teams. Those are the ones you're, you're probably familiar with. The Atlanta Braves, New York Yankees, Chicago Cubs, Boston Red Sox, so on and so forth. And each major league team has a minor league system or called the farm system. And that's the Columbia Fireflies. They are a single-A team of the Kansas City Royals. The minor league system is set up in three divisions. Single-A, double-A, triple-A. And, and the system is set up so that when a, a baseball player graduates high school or, or college and they're drafted by a major league team, they can go through the farm system. They can go through the, the minor league system to play more baseball, to, to get good coaching, and to hopefully become a better and better baseball player. And, and generally speaking, they will start off in, in single A ball, and if they're good enough, they can make their way up to double A ball. And if they play well enough in double A ball, they can make their way up to triple A ball. And if they're really good... Well, one of the few who, who are really good, then they'll be called up to the major leagues and be on the roster of a major league baseball team. But the whole farm system, the whole minor league system is there for a player to go into, to grow in skills, and to prove that hopefully, eventually, they'll be able to make it to the next level to prove that one day they are good enough to be a major league baseball player. Now I say all that to lead to this point. In the church, we tend to have a, a minor league system for officers 
and has called being a deacon, servant on the diaconates. Many churches tend to think of a deacon and a diaconate as where you send someone so they will hopefully and eventually prove themselves worthy of being an elder. The idea is let them go serve a term or two of being a deacon and then maybe one day they'll be an elder. That system works great in Major League Baseball. But that's not the system set forth for the church in the Bible. Nowhere do we read in the Bible that there's a minor league for church officers set forth in God's word. Though we're going to get a little nerdy here for a minute. In our Presbyterian system, we have it's a system of government. And we have uh, two, two, two kind of ruling, um, two ruling systems here. And officers of the church are elders who serve in the session and deacons who serve on the diaconates. Now I'm going to put this in oversimplified terms, but I think it'll work for us this morning. The elders are called to have spiritual oversight of the church. And the deacons are called to have physical oversight of the church. So the elders in the session have been called, and we believe equipped, to have spiritual oversight of the church. They are under-shepherds of this flock. They, they, they handle the, the, the spiritual aspects of the church. Whereas we believe the deacons, serving under diaconate, have been called by God to serve the church by having physical oversight of the church. Now, there, there, are, there are overlaps in these ministries, and it can be more, more nuanced, but for the sake of this morning, that's the difference. Spiritual oversight and physical oversight. The, the problem arises when we think that the spiritual oversight makes elders in session better or superior to the other. And what we will see this morning, Lord willing we'll see as we go through Acts 6, is that one office isn't better or superior to the other. Or put it this way, being an elder, putting out a pastor as well who serves on the session, being an elder doesn't make one more important than a deacon. And being a deacon doesn't make one less than an elder. They are two different offices, but they are equally important offices. They are both God-ordained, they are both God-called, and they are both important to the life and ministry of the church. Let me ask you one simple question this morning. Two questions. Is it hot outside? And the answer is, undubitably, I said it wrong, but you know what I was trying to say. Yes, extremely hot outside. Second question, are you thankful for air conditioning this morning? Who can you thank? Do you can thank the thinkers. thinkers. Do you think they're important now? Yes. Think about it, if we had no documents... Our church would quickly fall apart in a lot of ways. We have a beautiful sanctuary. Well kept. Thank the deacons. You have semi-comfortable pews to sit on. You can thank the deacons. Without the deacons, the church would fall apart. So let me reiterate. One office isn't better or superior to the other. Being an elder doesn't make one more important than a deacon. And being a deacon doesn't make one it doesn't make one lesser than the elder. They're, they're different offices, but they're equally important. 
Nowhere, and I mean nowhere do we get a sense that an elder or a pastor is more important than a deacon in Scripture. As a pastor, one to, I can say this for myself, and I think it's true for other pastors, one of the hardest lessons we have to learn is that it's not very common that one sermon will immediately affect big change in the church. Now, we can come up to the pulpit and think, man, I have got a banger of a sermon this morning. I'm going to blow minds from the pulpit this morning. But it's, one of the hard lessons to learn is that it's not all that common for one sermon to make immediate drastic change in the life of a church. I heard one pastor uh, explain it this way, that, that listening to sermons is like eating meals. Over the course of your life, where we are alive now, we may be able to remember on one or two hands a specific meal we've had over our lives. But when you put all those meals together, you find that you've been well nourished. We may not remember every sermon we've ever heard. I don't. I'm struggling to remember what I preached last Sunday. But when we put it all together, what do we find? That we're well nourished by the word of God. I say that to now be a hypocrite and contradict myself. I do hope this sermon this morning will affect immediate change. That for any of us in here who are thinking in that way, the elders are the all-stars and the deacons are lower, are lower caste, please listen and understand that is not biblical. That's not how God has intended for the church. Because we could say that would settle rivalry, wouldn't it? Then how would you feel if you, if, you, if you were led to believe you were called to serve the church because you were just lesser than other people? These are two different yet vitally important offices. And we see that in our passage this morning. And it's introduced to us through, through an issue, and I would say it's a significant issue that's been raised in the church. Look again with me at verse 1. Now on these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Luke starts with a positive here. More and more people are hearing the gospel. They're, they're responding to the gospel. They're becoming Christians. They're following Christ. The church is, is increasing in number week by week, day by day, even hour by hour. The church is growing. And it's growing quickly. But as it's growing, some of these disciples are falling through the cracks of ministry. And mainly those are the Hellenists. And Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. And, and the problem is all the other widows in the church, primarily the widow, uh, Hebrew widows, are getting their daily distribution from the church. But not the Greek-speaking Jews. Their widows are being neglected. They're not getting their daily distribution from the church. Now, behind this problem is an Old Testament ethic that extends into the New Testament. We go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and we see where God commands his people to take care of widows. One of the main responsibilities of God's people is to take care of widows. Now we come forward to the New Testament. We go to the epistle of James. And do you remember how James defined true religion? By taking care of who? Widows and orphans. 
God's people from the very beginning have been called to take care of widows, to take care of those who are in need. But specifically widows, because during this time and culture, widows were were almost seen as outcasts. They had no political or social standing. They had no way to make a decent, decent living, so there was no consistent way for them to provide for their families. They would almost become like beggars. So God, all the way back in the, New, in the Old Testament, coming out through the New Testament, tells his people, you need to look after the widows, especially those in your church. That's part of your mission. How do we know a church is a true church? By the way it takes care of its widows. The early church knew this ethic, and they obeyed this ethic. They were taking care of, taking care of widows, taking care of them daily. That somebody from the church would go to a widow in the church daily and make sure they had enough food, that their rent was paid, that the air was on, that the water was running. They were taking care of their widows. But somewhere along the line, and we believe unintentionally, the hellness widows fell through the cracks. Their air conditioning was being turned off. The water was being turned off. They weren't getting bread and food every day. Now, This is all happening with an estimated 12,000 people now in the church. And this is a very short time. This is just a few months that the church has grown from 120 in the upper room to now 12,000 people. We're averaging 60 to 70 in worship each Sunday. How do you think we would be in six months if we were averaging 6,000 or 7,000 in worship? We need more pews, (laughs) wouldn't we? But somebody's probably going to fall through the cracks. We can understand this is unintentional. But there's good news here. This is a good problem because the gospel is is at work and God is is blessing the gospel work of his church. And, and, And they're growing and they're growing. It's a good problem for them to have, but it's a problem nonetheless. So the problem is brought to the 12 apostles, And probably in very personal terms, why are y'all neglecting our widows? You're taking care of your people. The Hebrew widows get all the good stuff, but you ain't taking care of our people. We understand what a landmine of a problem that could be, can't we? And so, in God-given wisdom, the apostles understand what's going on but they understand they're not the ones who are to handle this problem. Look what they said in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So interesting, we read about the first congregational meeting. Right, the twelve called together the twelve thousand and explained to all of them, that their ministry, what they have been called to by God, what they've been equipped to do, was the preaching and teaching of God's word. And because of, of the nature of that ministry and, 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 and how it took their time, they didn't have the time for them to now to add on to their schedule, for them to go out and take care of the physical needs of the church. They couldn't do that and continue to do the ministry of the word well. They couldn't be a jack of all trades and a master of none. So, so they go into prayer 
And through prayer, they're, they're given us God-given wisdom that comes with this solution. Look again at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So notice their solution. Deacons. Choose seven men to be deacons, and they will form the first diaconate. The apostles again explain. They have, those twelve have been equipped and called for the spiritual oversight of the church through the ministry of the word. Yet there's another important ministry to be handled. This physical ministry, the, the, the mercy ministry to church, to make sure everyone's provided for. And they said, go find seven good men to do this. Now, I'm going to say it like this. This is in part why we're Presbyterian. Here we see Presbyterianism in the early church. You find a, you find a formation of a session and you find a formation, formation of the diaconate. And we see that the twelve apostles see this ministry, this diaconal ministry, as vitally important to the church. They didn't say they couldn't do this ministry because it was lesser than them. That they were too smart, they were too holy to do it. What they recognize is that God had called and equipped them to do the ministry of the word. And there's another equally important ministry in the church that they are not able to handle. So they need to go out and find seven men to take care of it. See, God has commanded for his people to take care of widows. It's important. And it's important for the early church to handle it well. So we see here the example of the early church right here. That one office isn't better or superior to the other. Uh, Peter and James and John and, and Thomas and Matthew, they're not looking down their noses at the deacons. And they're saying, there's an equally important ministry church that, 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 that we need you to take care of. So again, being an elder doesn't make one more important than a deacon. Being a deacon doesn't make one less than an elder. They are two different, yet they are vitally important offices called and ordained by God for the good of his church. And we see the importance of the, uh, of, the, of the office of deacon, not just in, in, in how, the, de- or how the, the, the apostles react to it, but also what they say about those who are to be chosen. Pick out among from you seven men of three characteristics. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And we will appoint these seven men to this duty. There are just three qualifications that we see here for deacon in the church. First is good reputation. They're to have a good reputation. They had to be those who were known both within and without the church as someone who could be trusted. They weren't a crook. They weren't somebody who were afraid to trust. They were somebody you'd know that if you called, they would help you. You know, if you asked them, they would give you the shirt off their back. They had a good reputation from within the church and without the church. But I also said they were full of the Spirit. So yes, this was a physical job to which they were called to administer to the physical need of the believers, but there was a spiritual requirement. They were to be Christians. They were to be those who had received and rested on Jesus alone for salvation as he's been offered in the gospel. And when, and when they are told to find somebody who is full of the Spirit, they're talking about finding somebody who lived in such a way, finding a man that, who, who lived in such a way that, that everybody knew they were full of the Spirit of Christ. There was no doubting their faith. 
There wasn't go looking at the back of the bulletin and go, oh, this guy's been called to be a deacon? Huh. That's curious. Now they were called those who were living the faithful Christian life. And also those who were full of wisdom. That would be those who were in Scripture, who knew Scripture, were growing in Scripture, and were living according to Scripture. Why? Well, think of the landmine they just been handed. You have a group of upset widows over there. You go take care of them. That takes wisdom. Taking care of physical parts of the church and those who need help in the church takes wisdom. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like minor league officers to me. That doesn't sound like folks who just aren't holy enough, good enough, who, who can't just quite cut it as an elder does it. It's interesting when you go read the requirements for elders and deacons in Titus and Timothy, you see that the requirements for elders and deacons are, are pretty much carbon copies of each other. In the Bible, in the early church, the office of the deacon and the diaconate is just as important as the office of the elder in session. They serve different ministries, but there's ministries that overlap and correspond with each other. Therefore, when a church looks for those to serve as a deacon, they're not looking for those who are lesser. They're looking for those who are of good character, who are full of the Spirit, and who are full of wisdom, because this is who God wants serving as deacons in His church. And did you notice, after Luke tells about these requirements, he re- relates a miracle that happened in the church. And what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. A congregational meeting of 12,000 people, and there's not one disgruntled person. Folks, that's a miracle. But then we're, we're seriously, we're, we're told then there are immediate blessings that come from this God-ordained leadership in the church. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't it interesting to note that Luke talks about the formation of the diaconates and the ministry of the word and what's he say? And he joins it together because the church was being obedient to God. The word of God continued to increase. With elders and deacons in place, the preaching and teaching of the gospel going forth, the ministry of the word, the ministry of service of folks in the church being taken care of, the church grew. And he says it grows greatly. Not, not little bits here and there, leaps and bounds. It's not even including priests, Jewish priests serving in the temple who respond to, in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think implied in this is that at least some of the priests saw the work of the deacons. Saw how, how this church that was growing was being faithful to the word, but they were being faithful to their people and serving their people. And the priest said, I've got to know more about this. And they hear the gospel and their hearts are open to it and they respond in faith. As the early church found their joy in Christ and found their joy in following him and obeying him, 
the Lord blessed the church by growing in leaps and bounds. It was happening at a personal level. The individuals of the church were growing in the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the church was bursting at the seams. And again, I would say some significant part of his growth came from the joy of Christ. Of this Christ-like service. That people would joyfully serve others in the example of Christ. It was a faithful, joy, ministry, joyful ministry of service. And I want you to think about it with me this way. I want to go back a few months before this. I want to go back to that Thursday night before the crucifixion. And where did Jesus and his disciples meet? They meet in the upper room. And when they all gather in the upper room, there's a table set with all the elements for the Passover. And we know that just in a little bit, Jesus is going to take the Passover and institute the Lord's Supper. And before that, he teaches them, according to the Gospel of John, he takes them through Trinitarian theology to prepare them for the cross. But before the table and before the teaching, do you remember what Jesus did? He got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples. Like a servant, he took off his outer robe, got down on his knees, got a bowl of water, and washed the feet of all 12 apostles, including Judas. Jesus was a servant. And Peter, as we know, in the southern east, bless his heart. Bless Peter's heart. So so quick to speak before he before so quick to speak before he thinks. Tries to rebuke Jesus for doing this. No, 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 Jesus, you're not to wash my feet. I, I should be washing your feet. No, no, Jesus, this is below you. And Jesus' response: If if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You know what Jesus is saying there? To follow me, you must serve like me before he took him to the table before he took him to the trinity Jesus served the church would we dare say that Jesus was lesser because he served would we say that he was wrong when he taught it was better to serve than to be served because what happens next? He serves them at the table. And then Philippians 2 tells us he had humbled himself in the form of a servant to perform the greatest act of service of all time by offering himself on the cross for us. Because he so loved you and he so loved me, he so loved his people that he served us by going on the cross to die in our place in the form of a servant. It's so easy to be served, isn't it? It's so easy to expect everybody else to do it for you. But it takes humility and selflessness to serve others. It takes a Christ-like mind and heart and faith. The office of deacon isn't a lower office. 
is a Christ-like office. A God-ordained, God-called office that seeks to serve the church as Jesus has called them to and set the example for. It's an office of Christ-like, joyful service of the flock, just as Jesus has served us. So what do we do? We need to encourage our deacons in this way. Let me just say this. No deacon has asked me to preach this sermon this morning. This is where we are in our series. Let us encourage our deacons in this way. Let us seek to have deacons who serve in this way. And may we love them and pray for them and help them in such a way that we, as the flock they are serving, will point them to Jesus as they point us to Jesus and how they serve us. Let's pray together.